Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Testing. Oh, one second. I think I know what's happening. Yes, ma'am. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Thank you for your patience. Okay, good. Yeah. Just no gonna problem. untangle one cord while we talk. So tell me um, where you are now in the country. This is our producer Kathleen on the phone with Mistress Pasha. Oh, uh, let's see. I'm. Uh, Midway through Oklahoma, just going north on 35. Last episode, we took you to one world Mike Gogan was familiar with, the world of private spies. Now, the world of exotic dancing. Mistress Pasha used to dance in Dallas, and now she's working as a dominatrix. We caught up with her while she was driving her mobile dungeon across state lines. And so you make house calls? Tell me how it works. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say I make house calls, but... I can definitely bring the mobile dungeon to your location for a fee. I mean, I imagine it's hard to park the mobile dungeon outside someone's house, like, super on the down low. Well, yeah, I'd all take it to people's houses. You know, I'll come downtown to your hotel or a parking lot close by. But the easiest for me is just a Walmart because Walmarts are very RV friendly. Wait a minute. That, come on. (laughs) So you're making people's dreams come true in in the Walmart? <laughs> Best use of a Walmart ever. Walmart parking lot. Yeah. Your wildest fantasy. So. This is Cover Story, Season 2, Seed Money. I'm Hannah Rosen. We'd heard stories about Mike meeting women in strip clubs, a casino, a whitefish condo, hotels around the world. We knew he gave women lots of money. But that is not the same as running a sexual enterprise. When we left off last episode, Matt, our source of many tips on Mike, and also many, many wild goose chases, was under arrest but out on bail. And still desperately telling us, dudes, this is how money wins. Mike is bending the justice system to silence his accusers. And it's up to you guys to dig up the dirt. So far, we didn't have any women telling us out loud on tape that he hurt them or did anything illegal. But there were a few important situations we hadn't looked into yet. They involved Mike showing up somewhere and telling a pretty young woman, paraphrasing here, what's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this? He came right up to me and he said, you know, I'm starstruck. He's saying all these nice flowery things. And he was really nice to me. I thought he was really sweet. I liked him. Um, And then he says, I would love to take you to dinner. At some point in each of the lives of these three women, Mike's sweetness went sour for them, for each in a different way. So if we wanted to complete our picture of who Mike Gogan was— understand whether there was even a seed of truth in what Matt was telling us, 
we had to listen to these women's stories. First stop, Baby Dolls in Dallas, Texas. That's where Mike met Amber Baptiste, the exotic dancer who eventually sued him for $40 million. That's where Mistress Pasha used to dance, too. It was a shithole, but it was just a money maker. Like, the carpet was usually not disgustingly nasty, but fairly worn out. And um, there were eight stages in the place, and it was just packed in there. I had a couple pool tables in the back, and the upstairs roof where the dressing room was always leaked every time it rained. They would run sometimes 115 girls on day shifts a day. When it says that Baby Dolls is a topless uh, club, does that mean that the dancers wouldn't take it all off? Or? No, I mean, we were teabag. That's all we were. Say that again. You were what? A G-string, you know, a teabag. C-A-C-K. Yeah. Teabag. Like, okay, that, that makes yeah. more sense. Okay. What kind of qualities do you need to have to be a good stripper? Thick skin and a great work ethic. Like, you can't let rejection get to you. Mistress Pasha told us that Amber Baptiste definitely had the work ethic. What she didn't have was the thick skin. I mean, she literally walked up to me one day at Baby Dolls and said, Hi, I'm Amber. I want to be your friend. (laughs) The sweetest tone in her voice all the time. Very soft-spoken. Me, I'm like, hey, you want to fuck? Okay, bye. (laughs) Everything with Amber was like, pink and soft and fluffy and girly and dainty and that's who she was. She was the girliest girl ever. For months, Amber Baptiste had been this mystery hanging over all our reporting. In 2016, she accused Mike in court of raping her in a London hotel room, of giving her an STD and of physically, emotionally, and psychologically abusing her. And then Mike sued her back. Amber cycled through multiple lawyers, falsified medical documents, missed court dates. Eventually, she lost her case, and Mike won his. The judge found Amber's allegations to be false and defamatory and found her liable for extortion. He ordered her to pay Mike back his money and stop defaming him in public. The court judgment was definitive. But we still had so many questions. Amber met Kathleen and me in our secret meeting place, which was a hotel room. How are you? Good, thanks so much. Nice to meet you. So good to meet you. In so many tabloid photos we'd seen, Amber was wearing almost nothing. But that day, she was in a floor-length sparkly gown, four-inch heels, and her arm in some kind of metal sling, like a broken princess. Bionic arm. Well, no, yeah, I wish. She brought her tiny, snuffly shih tzu. <laughs> So far, her name is Baby. Ah, don't bite my microphone. Yeah, she, she will bite. Throughout she all her years of battle with Mike, Amber had never talked at length with reporters. And she's still today subject to a restraining order. So she can't repeat allegations she made against Mike in court. But she agreed to sit down and give us some basics, like who she is and how she and Mike met. So we set up a pee-pee pad for Baby in the shower. Oh, my God. And then Amber began to tell us about her childhood as grandpa's little girl. We were very, very close. I would say almost in a way, it's a soulmate. She grew up under super strict rules in a religious household. No dancing, no drinking. I'm like, I've never had a birthday party. 
Like, I never had a Halloween costume. Instead, she spent her time on quiet, nerdy pursuits, like killing it at the science fair. I noticed that, like, every year somebody would do the lemon that could ba- charge the battery. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Like, so I always wanted to do something, like, original. And my final full science presentation that I ever did was about how women who live together and are very close, that they start to menstruate at the same time. I know fact-checkers, not a scientifically proven phenomenon. Thank you. But she was a kid who grew up to be kind of a nerdy stripper. On stage, she went by Princess Jasmine. She does look a little bit like her. Light brown skin, giant warm eyes. She sewed her own costumes and became a headliner at Canadian clubs. But also, she told us, she was quietly suffering. I would get such bad migraines. She hated stripping, hated the noise and the smoke. The cigar smoke, like your eyes are burning. She's asthmatic. You can hear it when she talks, her ragged breathing and her long pauses. So she had to find her own little secret garden pleasures. Reading kept my mind a bit, you know, calm, like a little bit still connected to reality. She would talk to customers about this, and sometimes they gave her books. I know I read, like, Life of Pi. Somebody gave you Life of Pi? Yeah. I mean, that's not some super expensive gift. I mean, other girls are asking for, like, probably a Louis Vuitton bag or something like that. Amber was about 21 when Mike first showed up at Baby Dolls. It was 2002, and he was in his late 30s. It was the week of his birthday. Just right, just like a regular guy to me. Really very run-of-the-mill. The way Amber remembers it, he was really curious about her. He was attentive and polite. He's like, when did you get here? What, how did you get here? Do you have a boyfriend? Are you married? Or do you have kids? Like, all the questions. What's your nationality? And his good guy vibe, it broke through her defenses. He was kind of soft-spoken, and there's very harsh people in that world. Before he leaves, they exchange contact information and start emailing. A lot of XOXOXOs back and forth. In my mind, being so young, and he's saying all these nice flowery things, and then he says, well, I'm coming, um, like, to Texas next week. Would you agree to have dinner with me? On and off for the next dozen or so years, Amber and Mike continued to have dinner, and more than dinner. They would meet in London or Silicon Valley or Palm Springs, wherever Mike happened to be. Mike left one wife and married another, and still. He's telling me he loves me. Amber and Mike have given wildly different accounts of their affair. Mike says their relationship was entirely consensual and that he in no way led her on. Amber has said a lot of things over the years that a court ruled were false and defamatory and that because of the restraining order, she's not allowed to repeat now. But their court battle served up another way to understand what happened between them. Hundreds of emails from the last few years of their affair that Mike says they rekindled after she wrote offering to become his secret forever dream girl. So, Exhibit A, a modern epistolary romance which begins with a lot of sugar. This one's from Amber. My dearest darling, I think that I adore you so much and you're so sweet with me that it overrides the other woman part in my mind. 
I guess I just don't like that I can't call you up and talk to you whenever I want. A response from Mike. Hi, sweet, beautiful angel. How are you? I've been having lots of distracting daydreams about you lately, so I think that means you better come up and visit me soon. Winky face, I miss you, gorgeous. I've been running around as usual, juggling a million crises, but I think I must operate best this My sweet, sweet sunshine. Tuesday night is good for me. I just have to see who will babysit my puppy for the night. Hi, my sexy angel from heaven. Amber, I absolutely love the letters you write to me. You put so much thought and concern for me behind the words. I can tell you that being together with you is the most amazing form of energy replenishment that there is. By this time, Amber was far from baby dolls. She was no longer dancing. She'd had another boyfriend with another messy ending. She sued him for spousal support, saying they were common law. And the suit settled for a couple hundred thousand dollars. Mike had married his third wife, something that did not sit super well with Amber. But still, she was trying to see past that. My dearest darling, it feels to me as if I've known you forever, not even like you were a stranger the first time I met you. And I would have loved you and taken care of you forever, but you fell in love with another girl. So what can I do? Start stomping around my apartment and saying it's not fair. I loved him first. No. I see you because I want to see you and feel you and touch you, not because you give me money. Though, she tells him, when you give me money, it gives me the freedom to never have to compromise myself. Mike responds, Darling, I can't write long since, as usual, I'm racing around. But I did want to quickly reassure you that you have me forever, and I absolutely don't want you to stress on the money side. If we want to make a more significant dent in your worries in one shot, I have an idea. It's in this email that Mike tells Amber to create her LLC. He writes, open a bank account under that company name and explains that he can then make payments to her and, quote, make it look like a real business transaction. She follows up in a later message. My company is all prepared. It came to my door in a box. I didn't know such a thing existed. A whole company in a box. Around this time, Mike and his wife are having children. And there's a whole other flavor of messages to Amber about his family. Hi, my beautiful Amber Angel. Sorry I was out of touch for the last week. It's because I was welcoming a new little angel into the world. He's super cute and incredibly alert. The picture below was taken less than 15 minutes after he was born. I've included another picture of me holding this little guy. I know that your incredibly sweet thoughts, wishes, and energy that you directed at my son went into the ingredients list that made him turn out so perfectly. My sweet sunshine, when are we going to meet again? How is your new fatherhood? Do you feel any different? How is your 40 days of humming to him? If you forgot... A year later, the tone of Amber's letters starts to shift. She seems less patient. You choose to spend your life with other women. If you love them more than me, you should absolutely continue. If you don't, you should be with the woman you love. I just feel sad that in almost 10 years, you have never taken one day out to spend with me. Mike hears her and gives her options. If we wanted to continue being deeply, crazy, passionately physical, sexual, and sensual with each other, I could be okay with that. However, if you feel better about us not having the physical part, but still hopefully having the rest of it, I could be okay with that too. 
though I wouldn't be able to stop fantasizing about you all the time. Another year goes by. Mike is still supporting her and making deposits. He tells her she looks great, and he says he's looking pretty good, too. In the past two weeks, I started P90X2, which seems even more intense than the original P90X, but focused more on strengthening your core and on balance. They meet in London, and soon after, Amber writes that she tore something during their sex and needed a small surgery. He shouldn't feel guilty, she assures him. The night was, quote, really incredible for her. Mike writes back, quote, physically sick with guilt and offering help. In Amber's email, she also describes a vision she's had of a daughter. I've never seen her as a baby, only as an older child. She's beautiful and unusual. She's beautiful in an angelic way. I can't wait for her to arrive. I hope she comes from you. I really do. During the year of correspondence that follows, Amber writes so many messages about playing in the forest as a child, her wish for a dolphin, bad omens, a foundation for girls she says she started. In court, she couldn't prove it was a real thing. Mike wires her more money, sends news of his philanthropy and his girls. But Amber starts to lean into her frustrations, that Mike never has time for her, that he doesn't even notice she's there, waiting. She accuses his wife at the time of being promiscuous and putting them both in danger. Mike responds by defending his wife, and to Amber's outrage, he points out ways that she and Amber are alike. Amber eventually writes unapologetically, quote, I am unhappy with my mistress job, end quote. She tells him that now, a decade into their relationship, she needs him to decide. She asks for a letter from Mike, a letter to set her free from what she calls her cage. She writes, it can be 12 words, 12 sentences, or 12 paragraphs. Quote, I am waiting very patiently for this letter from you. And, quote, it is in my eyes the most heroic gesture you could ever make. Finally, Mike complies. March 5th, 2013. My beautiful, sweet, deep, and loving Amber, I'm so grateful for 11 years of my life. The love we have shared is beautiful and liberating when it can be experienced together, but binding and constraining when it cannot be fulfilled. Our destiny is not one where you should be constrained by it any longer. You are destined to be the angel you were born the letter did not work the magic either of them probably hoped for. At this point, Mike was a partner at Sequoia Capital. He was the father of four children, and people did not necessarily know about his parallel relationships and the secret money he was depositing in the accounts of exotic dancers and waitresses and single moms around the country. Amber seemed to fully embrace the one power she possessed, to expose Mike. She begins demanding money for her, quote, charity and for herself. She goes after Mike's wife, saying outlandish and sometimes racist things about her, calling her lazy and a liar and a fame whore, a low-rent car model who hooks up with men for money. Amber threatens to tell the world about her affairs with Mike and more. And she batters him with questions. 
How many strippers have you slept with? Why do you think strip clubs are nice places to meet wives? Can you please try to answer the questions with direct, clear answers? What is your issue of dating a woman that is, say, for example, an attorney? We've mentioned the years-long brawl that followed. In a settlement, Mike agreed to pay Amber $40 million over two years to keep quiet. And they both agreed to no contact. But neither fully complied. And even after Amber received the first $10 million payment, she continued to barrage Mike with texts. Their agreement fell apart. And after it became clear Mike was done making those payments, Amber went for it. She filed her sweeping lawsuit, claiming that back in that same London hotel room where she'd first written that their sex was incredible, but that he'd injured her, now, she alleged, he'd actually raped her. She also accused him of giving her an STD, and she essentially portrayed him as being in collusion with a shady collection of traffickers who held her in indentured servitude and forced her to strip. It was the talk of tech news. Scandal in the Silicon Valley. A woman claims a venture... And for Mike, it was calamitous. Michael Gogan is out at Sequoia... Gogan says his departure allows him to focus on clearing his name. Sounds like his name needs a little clearing. Yeah, wow, that's it. Nothing good comes of being a cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater, an accused cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater. Then all of a sudden, you're reading articles that you know are published all around the entire world. This detailed description of a human being that you just, you're disgusted by, and you're full of revulsion. But then you see your picture, and you say, wait a minute, this, that's talking about, that's using my name, they're portraying that that's me. And it's this crazy, incredibly deep gut punch, you know, that really makes you sort of crumble in a puddle. When Gogan sued Amber back, his attorney put out a statement, quote, this is an age-old story of a jilted lover looking for revenge. His countersuit accuses her of extortion. Filed with the court first thing Monday morning alleging extortion. That is how a judge ruled that Amber defamed and extorted Mike, and that she had to repay him $10 million plus interest. So no evidence that Michael Gogan is the monster of her telling. But he's not the hero of his own telling either. For example, the very night Mike and Amber signed that legal agreement that was supposed to end all contact. Uh, did that, that night, did you have sexual relations with her? Yes. Okay. This is Mike answering questions from an attorney in a related lawsuit. He says he went to Amber's hotel room at her request. One more request. I literally feared if I rejected her uh, that I could undo everything that was just done. But didn't you believe at the time the agreement was signed, all your issues and disputes with Miss Baptiste were resolved? But I also didn't trust that she was stable um, and would remain stable. I thought it was very important to keep her stable. And by having sex with her, was that your intention to keep her stable? It was to not do anything to disrupt uh, the state I thought we were in, which was done and she was happy and stable. When Mike texted Matt to tell him the story of that night, he was less diplomatic. The message came with a photo. This is that nutty girl I just paid a zillion dollars to go away and who I fucked one last goodbye time on Friday. 
At least you can see why my little head sometimes did the thinking when it came to her. When Mistress Pasha saw the news about her old baby doll's colleague, she did think Amber sounded a little unstable. What she couldn't get her head around was that Amber had had in her grasp a $40 million settlement. And instead of riding off into the sunset, she blew it all up. The whole entire thing shocked me because that's not who she was. I mean, I actually feel bad for her because, I mean, something had to be wrong with her to let a deal like that fly through your fingers. I'm sure you've been in love and jilted or cheated on or something before, and it just makes you crazy. She just couldn't take it. It had been going on for so many years, and, you know, I don't know. Amber Baptiste failed to hold on to millions, and she failed to prove Mike was a criminal. But she did succeed in one thing. She made very, very public their secret affair. And among the people who read and heard about it were other women with their own secrets about Mike. That's after the break. From New York Magazine, this is Cover Story. Next stop, a brief visit with a former cocktail waitress who, when she read about the exotic dancer's affair with Mike, decided to speak up about her own. Hello? Our producer, Kathleen, first reached Naomi King on the phone. Hi. Hello, Kathleen. How are you? She didn't have any horror stories about Mike, but she had, like Amber, changed her mind about her former boyfriend. Quarter mile, slight right toward Main Street. So we headed out to see her. Okay, turn in. There she is. She's on her phone. Naomi is in her mid-50s. She was living with her dad when we got in touch. And we met up at an outdoor antique market where she was selling her handmade jewelry. Hi. Good to see you. So nice to meet you. We ended up talking in her van. We'll go and enter on the other side, okay? She shoved aside some pillows and water bottles so we could hear a story that seemed like it might be the origin story of Mike on the move at the club before he was even a millionaire. I was, um, serving... It was 1994. And this bar was in the middle of the casino. Naomi was 26 and working as a cocktail waitress at Harris Casino in Lake Tahoe. And I had come up to my bartender to get my round of drinks, and I saw Michael across the bar. And he just looked so beautiful, all-American, you know, just just really just, to, in my eyes, he was the man of my dreams, just gorgeous. He is a type. I said, too bad he's married. He had a wedding ring on. And my bartender looked at him and he said, you know, something to the effect of that geek. He goes, are you kidding me? He said, you go take your drinks out. When you come back, he won't be wearing that ring. And I came back and my bartender was bowled over laughing. And I was like, what's wrong with you? And he's like, he took his ring off. On went the night. And then it was almost shift over time. And he came right up to me and he said, you know, I'm starstruck said, my name is Michael Gogan. I'm on convention. I would love to take you to dinner. He said, well, I'm in an unhappy marriage right now, and you're thinking about divorce, and you just gave that sad look, you know. I believed him. That's a stupid, naive thing. And this was, you know, Cosmo was probably just starting to write articles on women in affairs and things like this, but this was not the norm. 
at this time. I'm pretty sure Cosmo had been writing about affairs for 30 years by then. Anyway, the story Naomi told us fit the nice guy pattern. A little innocence in his early seduction. A hint of Sweet Valley High in his sex talk. Naomi says they went dancing. And then their relationship continued on and off for the next decade. Mike was still married when Naomi moved to San Francisco, where she was closer to him. And though Mike says this is inaccurate, Naomi remembers him offering to pay for things for her. Like, I could give you friends and family stock. Do you know what that is? He was now working at Sequoia Capital, starting to make serious money. Wouldn't it be nice if I gave you financial security for the rest of your life? I thought that was so just genuine and, you know, expression of love that you just, you know... You can't explain. So why would you say no if you're if you if you said that if you thought it was an expression yeah. of love? I didn't say no at that time. He was giving me this idea, and we were seeing each other. But shortly after, probably within a week or two, I decided to get back together with my ex-boyfriend, and I told him that we were going to have to stop seeing each other. Looking back. The thing Naomi resents the most is how that idea that Mike could be her hero wedged its way into her psyche and how it stayed there, quietly influencing her decisions. She doesn't like that even after they ended things, she kept being available to Mike for romantic trysts. She doesn't like that when she fell on hard times, she asked Mike for help, and that when he sent her $3,000, she doesn't like that it seemed to her like not enough— given the mansion that he was building in Montana. Eventually, she stopped communicating with Mike at all. But years later, she would still search his name now and then. Yeah, I typed in his name, you know, to see how Michael was doing. And it was all over the news. The lawsuit. Amber's claims of abuse. And that Mike gave her an STD. And the timing? It overlapped with some of Naomi's meetups with Mike. Yeah, I almost jumped out of my skin. But then when I found out about all the women, then that just really blew my mind. I only thought it was me. I didn't know about other women. He seemed so wholesome. At first, Naomi wasn't sure whose side she was on. And she ended up in a sort of tug of war between them. When she offered to give testimony in Amber's case, Mike's team got in touch right away, assuring her that Mike had done nothing wrong which, Mike pointed out, was their job. The investigators were calling me and trying to convince me not to go forward with my testimony, would literally tell me he's given millions of dollars to people and never had sex with them. And I told the investigator, you have to be kidding me, right? These women are strippers and you're saying he just went into these clubs and gave them millions for not having sex with anybody? This is a joke. Who who do you think you're talking to? Still today, that's the part that galls Naomi. The way Mike, a perpetually married man, seemed to double dip with so many women. Women who really wanted or needed what he had to offer. Sweet talk and a lot of money. And that, in her view, is how Mike got what he wanted when he wanted it, until he was done. He's playing these games with everybody's hearts and minds. And he loves to show off and be the hero, but yet he won't save you if, you know, he feels it's not right for him. It's almost like he's 
using all the women as a startup company. Like some he's going to fund and some he isn't, depending on how he analyzes them. In all the court filings, for all the lawsuits we'd waded through, there was one more story of a secret affair that floated to the surface during Amber's lawsuit. And unlike the others in this story, this one went from sour to sweet. Soon after the news of her lawsuit broke, this email landed in Amber's inbox. Hi, I've been reading the stories that have went out against Michael Gogan and this other lady, and I don't think I could just sit here and keep this information to myself, as hard as it is. Our producer, Noor, read the email to us. I have information that may or may not help your case against him. She describes how a friend of Mike's hired her for a gig. I was asked to pop out of a cake at a party in Whitefish, Montana. After the cake party, I was asked to be a, quote, escort from multiple men who were texting me. And then at a get-together a couple of months later, the same guy introduced her to Mike. And he paid me $1,200 to have sex with him that night. When I saw Michael Gogan's face all over Facebook, I knew that was the guy I slept with that night for money. She's writing all this long before Amber loses her case, before the judge finds her liable for fraud and extortion. She's just writing to tell Amber, I believe you. I'm now 23. Seeing these allegations against him makes me happy that karma is coming back around because he took away an important part of my identity search as a teenager. Half a decade later, there are so many contested things about this email, from her age to whether the woman whose name is on it even wrote it. But in a way, it doesn't matter who wrote it, because the email took on a life of its own. It wasn't meant to accuse anyone of a crime or turn anyone's life inside out. But it did. It set off a chain of events that ended a cop's career. It put a wealthy whitefish contractor in the hot seat. And it led us to information that more than any evidence we'd come across challenged the story that Mike Ogan was telling about himself. It wasn't until two years after Amber got the email that she decided to send it to a cop. Yes, it will start at the the very beginning, Ken. Shane Erickson was a detective with the Whitefish PD at the time. Whitefish seems like a pretty low-key place. Yeah, you've been here so you can see what On the phone, Erickson said that because Whitefish is chock full of bars, He's actually worked a multitude of sex without consent cases. But when he got this email from a woman saying that as a teenager, she was pressured to be an escort and that Mike Gogan paid her $1,200 to have sex with him. I was went up to Mike's for, for dinner. And he, he went up to Mike Gogan's house for dinner. Mike says the dinner was already planned. They were buddies. Detective Erickson, his wife was my kid's teacher. And they were going to come over. And when Erickson got there, Mike had already seen the email. He showed it to me, and he's like, Hey, I just got this. I said, yeah, I know. I I have got that, too. What's going on here? Why why is someone saying this? Now, if you're like us, you're thinking, "Mm, a police officer gets an email from a woman saying Mike had sex with a teenager. The officer's first move was to chat about it over dinner with Mike. That's not right. But Erickson now says that the letter seemed fake. The girl's age was wrong, and Amber had for months been sending him false leads. This looked like just another one. So I'm telling Mike, I don't believe this even came from her. So we need to give this to the FBI so they can investigate that. 
So what did I do? Within 24 hours, I had an appointment to go down, presented to the FBI, said, investigate this. It's provably untrue. And maybe it would have ended there. The FBI has the information. All is quiet. Except one way or another, Matthew Marshall hears about the email. And Matt brings it up with his buddy at the station, who happens to be the police chief, who says, why didn't anyone investigate this? And then a lot happens after Matt gets involved. Erickson is ultimately pushed to resign. He gets another job right away with an anti-trafficking group Mike is on the board of. But more importantly, the police chief assigns another detective to investigate. And we got a hold of that investigation. It makes a sound when you drop it on a desk. Mm -hmm. We all got on a call so our producer, Whitney, could walk us through the details. Uh, I figured I would just go through, like, a brief description of what we have and then do... I hope this isn't insulting, but because I just saw No Time to Die, like, in my head, I've filed you <laughs> along with Q. I have, I have often felt this way on this project. Like um, digitizing. And I'm just, like, back at the home office, just like... <laughs> the documents do bring some clarity. Multiple interviews with multiple people that corroborate a lot of what's in that email. The story they tell includes intimate moments in one young woman's life that she doesn't want public. So we're calling her Jane Doe at her request. And we're including only enough details to show one well-documented case of something many Whitefish residents told us they feared. Older, wealthy men turning to much younger women to satisfy their desires. A scene that in this instance, Mike participated in. The first part of the story in that stack of documents was about Mike's friend and business associate. He was the contractor who oversaw the construction of that basement room with a stripper pole in the bar Mike owned. We reached out to him for comment, and he declined. I think it's instructive to go into some of the details of the actual interview and read some of those longer passages. Great. Sounds great. See, there's a lot of stuff about this first party where she jumps out of the cake. It was a holiday party the contractor threw and a birthday for his brother. He invited Gogan, but Gogan was out of town, and so he wasn't there. According to the documents, Mike's contractor asked if his teenage son knew of any attractive young women in town. He needed someone to jump out of a cake at a party. And the son referred him to his former high school girlfriend, uh, Jane Doe. She was not going to be naked and would be wearing a dress. She would be paid $300 for jumping out of the cake. From pictures, it's like Mad Men meets Yellowstone. A three-tier white cake with polka dots is rolled into the lodge. Jane then pops out in a matching white mini dress. Turns out she was 18 at the time of the birthday Mm -hmm. cake. In a couple of pictures, she's sitting on the brother's lap. He's in a cowboy hat and looks at least twice her age. She'd just graduated. And she acknowledges this now, like in these interviews, like she was a kid at the time. In the police interviews, Jane Doe says the contractor was bringing her a lot of drinks, which he denies. In the pictures, she's holding what looks like a shot glass. He was saying some super sexual things. Like, I don't. This is our producer, Noor, reading Jane's answers. Okay. And Whitney reading the detective's questions. Do you think he slept with you that night when, when you and you don't remember it? Maybe. According to the documents, after that night at the lodge, Mike's contractor kept texting her. He told police that he slept with Jane a lot for over a year, that he paid her rent, bought her gifts. Also that he prepaid a boob job for her that he says she didn't get. She kept the money instead. He says, I bought her clothes. I did a lot for that girl. Quote, I treated that girl like gold. 
According to her, he was trying to get her to hook up with other guys that he knew. She started getting a few texts from unfamiliar numbers. She told the detective. He would just say they had all these ideas and plans he wanted me to be a part of so I could actually, like, make money at some point. He's like, you'd be really good if you were doing a stripper. And he was like, I could help you with that. So do you think, I mean, did you think he was, I mean, these people were going to pay you to have sex with them? Oh, probably, yeah. Yeah, I didn't tell anyone about it. Because obviously I was, like, super ashamed about it. Jane told the investigator she didn't meet any of these men he was sending her way. But then one time was a little different. He wanted her to meet someone he was close to. He said he had a friend that was coming and that they just wanted to hang out and, like, have drinks, so. So this is when Mike enters the picture. In his police interview, the contractor says he's been telling Mike about Jane Doe. Quote, so I told Mike about it. Like, the next time you come up, I'm going to have her, you know, I'll have her come over and dance. I'll have a bunch of outfits there. They eventually meet at Mike's condo. There's another guy there, too. Jane Doe has turned 19 by this time. Did you know you were going to go there and dance for him? Mm Mm-hmm. He asked if I could dance for them, and I was like, I guess so. Like, I had clothes on, and then he would just say, like, do this or do this. And he, at one point, was like, you should sleep with Mike. And I was like, no, I don't want to. And I mean, I just kept, I just remember being really, really drunk at that point because they were just like making drinks the whole time. He, he offered me like a thousand dollars and I was like. Who offered you one thousand dollars? Um, well, he said that Mike would pay me. Mike would pay you? Yeah. One thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Did you take him up on that? I think I was just really drunk. Um, so I was like, I wasn't even really worried about the money. But I ended up just being, like, sleeping with him anyway because I was just, I don't know, like, naive and stupid. In the interview transcripts, Jane says the next morning she saw that Mike had left her more than $1,000 in cash. And according to the documents, Mike told police he paid Jane Doe for dancing. He's denied paying her or anyone for sex. The first time we talked, you said it really wasn't about the money. Uh, Is that true? I mean, I don't. I feel like I wouldn't have even slept with that guy if it wasn't for the money. You wouldn't? Obviously. So that's, that's it. Oh, boy. Eventually, Jane Doe told the investigator she texted the contractor. I was like, I don't want to hang out with your friends anymore. At one point, I texted him, and I was like, don't ever talk to me again. Like, don't reach out to me. And I ended up blocking his number. In the first two police interviews, Jane Doe does not deny writing that original email to Amber. And she answers specific questions about it. Says she wrote it to Amber to let her know, quote, I do believe you because they're really bad people. But she also doesn't accuse Mike of a crime. That night with Mike, though, was that all consensual? Um, I think so. Okay. I mean, I was drinking. You were drinking? Yeah. Is there anything you want to explore the possibility of us looking into, like a criminal investigation? No. There's nothing? Mm-mm. Nothing there? Nothing you, want to, nothing you want us to look into or anything like that? No. This is, like, a really long time ago. Jane Doe and Mike Gogan now attend the same church. 
They see each other at whitefish events and make sweet comments on each other's social media. You know, we're all quite good friends now, and she communicates quite frequently with the wife, and she appears to be very happy in a, you know, looks like very serious relationship. Very recently, she sent us a voice memo. So this is Jane Doe. Anyways, I am a real person, and I am here to tell you my side of things and my story. She describes her night with Mike like it was nothing to talk about. Um, I was introduced to Mike through a mutual friend. We ended up hanging out one night. Um, He was really nice to me. I thought he was really sweet. I liked him. Um, We ended up engaging in consensual uh, sexual relations. And after that, I had texted him and told him, you know, I'd like to hang out again. And other than that, like, didn't think anything of it. I was busy in school. Um, Anyways, there's been a lot of stuff said that... Jane lists a series of rumors that she wants to dispel. There's this, like, rumor going around that I was paid for sex, which I would never do for one. There's also, um, like, these rumors going around that, like, I was prostituting myself and things like this. Like, I'm a college girl, like, going to school and trying to get a degree. She also tells us she doesn't trust the Whitefish police. She had a terrible experience with them when she was younger. As to the email itself, even though Jane Doe discussed it in two police interviews in some detail, she now says she didn't write it. I will swear under oath that I did not write this email, and I have also told people in sworn affidavits that I have not written this email. So at some point, Jane Doe changed her story. The first the police heard about that was from Mike Gogan's and his contractor's lawyers. Jane later told a detective that those lawyers drafted a statement for her to review, edit, and sign. Which isn't to say these statements were coerced. The most important things in them are, one, neither drugs nor alcohol influenced my decision to become intimate with Mr. Gogan. And two, I did not accept money from Mr. Gogan or anyone else in exchange for sex. In sum, quote, my relations with Mr. Gogan involved no crime, mistreatment, or coercion of any kind. So I don't really get, like, why this was ever brought up besides the only evil in this world, which is money. So, anyways, that's really my story of things. There's a lot more to In the end, what Mike and Jane both kept emphasizing is that they're friends now. There are no hard feelings. And according to Mike, they were always friendly. He referred to texts that they exchanged shortly after they'd had sex. And she did write, come visit again. But Jane also wrote to him that it was dumb of her to have unprotected sex with someone she didn't know and that she was worried about STDs. He writes back, baby, you're fine with me. I got tested recently, and I'm 100% clean always. Plus, I usually use condoms. But you should be really careful with anyone you're with. Asking isn't enough. Guys will lie. You're way too sweet to end up getting something like that that will affect you forever. XOXO. So where do we land? According to an extensive police investigation, Mike had unprotected sex with a possibly drunk 19-year-old at his condo, And this woman was someone his friend had been sleeping with after recruiting her from among his son's high school friends. Maybe what doesn't sit right about that is that here's this guy who always has an explanation for why he's done the right thing. And then that politeness, 
that soft, mild way of speaking. It just seems to paper over any worries or complications. The fact, for example, that he's one of the richest men in America, and these women, not so much. One way or another, these stories, always just this side of legal, have infected the town of Whitefish. There's just like this certain paranoia that everyone has, which is like a death grip. This young woman told us that she almost lost herself in Whitefish and that she was an eyewitness to the same scene that Jane Doe was briefly drawn into. Yeah, it's it's a dangerous wealth gap. And, you know, some people have everything they ever want, and so they get bored, and they do crazy shit. Like, that's... I don't know why some of the people there do what they do, but I feel like a lot of girls get preyed upon and they're naive to what's even happening or naive to where it all leads because it does look nice. I mean, you just don't know the different outcomes that could happen. You just know that it looks nice. Mike, by the way, has a very different explanation of how stories like this one came to infect the town. He believes it's a conspiracy and at the root of it all, is Matt, his former right-hand man. He believes Matt is the author of that contested email. Once he knew he was under the gun and likely to go to prison, this was kind of the final atom bomb that I can try to launch. And how would Matt have known anything about Jane Doe? Mike says he once told Matt about that night. Quote, I told him that the only relationship that I could recall that could even be characterized as a one-night stand was my, parentheses, adult, spontaneous, mutually consensual, and mutually positive, end parentheses, night with Jane Doe. I then gave Marshall enough factual detail about the night for him to be able to write the fabricated, distorted version in the forged email. The fact that any of this ever made it into public awareness, uh, I can put squarely on the shoulders of a con man who used every means at his disposal to perpetuate his crime and avoid detection. That's next on Cover Story. Cover Story is a production of New York Magazine. This season, Seed Money, hosted by me, Hannah Rosen. The story originates with Ken Silverstein, who also reported it. Our senior producers are Marianne McCune and Whitney Jones. Also produced by Nor Bazidi, Kathleen Horan, and Liza Yeager. Sound design and engineering, as well as additional editorial help by Sharif Youssef. Cover Story's theme music is by Santa Gold. Series music by Devin Clara Fonslow. With additional music by Links to Muth, Brandon McFarland, and John Ellis. Fact-checking by Bertina Chang. Research help from Melissa Romero-Martinez. Special thanks to Legal Minds' Alyssa Cohen, Jillian Robbins, and Samantha Mason. Also thanks to Nicole Hill and Gabby Grossman. If you'd like to tell us anything, anything at all, you can send us an email at coverstory at nymag.com. Hold up. 